Bienvenidos a Crónicas de la Raza. Welcome to La Raza Chronicles. La Raza Chronicles is proud to present a conversation between Angela Davis and Olga Talamante called Voices from the Resistance, hosted by Chelis Lopez. This remarkable discussion between these fascinating feminist thinkers and activists took place on November 30th, 2018 at the Brava Theater in San Francisco. It was edited down by Nina Serrano for your enjoyment. The live event was held to support the scholarship and leadership programs of the Chicana Latina Foundation, as well as the Maestra Peace Muralist upcoming book, Maestra Peace, Murals of the San Francisco Women's Building, which opens with an introductory essay by Angela Davis. The Maestra Peace Muralists include Juana Alicia, Miranda Bergman, Edith Boone, Susan Clark Cervantes, Mira Desai, Yvonne Littleton, and Irene Perez. Identity, it can be such a powerful thing. I was telling someone that I, no one ever called me a Mexican in Mexico. <laughs> I became a Mexican here. Yeah. So like, oh, you're a Mexican. Oh, okay. And so the things you don't have a choice of, I was born a Mexican. But then they started calling me Mexican-American. You know, it's like, okay, okay. So choosing uh, Chicana as an identity was really an act, a, a political act uh, that actually transcends several things because in Mexico, once we left, then we were pochos, you know, and, and like we had left and became traitors, and, and, uh, and then of course here we were, you know, dinners and other things. And so, so it was very important to adopt that identity as Chicanas and Chicanos because that became our own term and it became our political identity as well as our social identity. I think since the time that I started working against the tracking system and also once I heard about the United Farm Workers Union and having grown up in the labor camps and so I've said this before, I didn't mind the hard work. I mean, it was hard work. I didn't mind it. What irked me to no end was the power relationship that the growers had over us, the workers, and how many decisions they made for us or over us. And so when I heard there was a union that was organizing for the dignity of farm workers, I said, sign me up. And I think have been at it ever since. And like you, sort of like, well, whoever I am, it's totally normal. It's, this is who I am. Yeah. And, and to be able to, to love who you love and, 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 and be who you are, good thing that, that we uh, have come to some of that point and they were able to do it here. And not everybody can do it around the world. And... So many of our brothers and sisters killed every day, harassed every day. The LGBTQ part of the caravan coming uh, from Central America. I mean, we have to really pay attention to our brothers and sisters that are part of that part of our peoples that are coming because there are some additional things that we need to pay attention to in terms of how they're being treated and what's happening with them. I guess I might also say I'm thinking about this precisely as a result of your discussion of the importance of identity, that I actually prefer the term black. Mm-hmm. I'm really ambivalent about the term African-American. Mm-hmm. 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 Um, okay. And I'm ambivalent because it indicates a certain kind of assimilation into what is known as America, And of course, 
this is not America. Mm -hmm. America is a hemisphere, right? Right. Thank you. Right. Uh, yes. And so if by African-American it meant people of the Americas of African descent, then I would say yes. But it doesn't even refer to black people in, in, in Mexico or Central America. It doesn't mm -hmm. even refer to black people in Canada. It's this colonizing term that establishes America as the center, America, the United States of, that is, as the center of the world. And, and black is a term of solidarity. There are black people all over the world. Black is also a political concept. Mm -hmm. It's not uh, a racial concept. Mm -hmm. it, it signifies struggle. It signifies a constant effort to move in the direction of freedom. And so that's why I prefer the term black. So I answered at least part yeah. of your question. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I have to say, I have to say that our dear friend Betita would be so proud that we are making that distinction about America That's in what you're saying because she has fought tooth and nail to bring that consciousness to people that say, oh, we're, we're America, right? I mean, that whole we're America. And so, and, I'm sorry. I just <laughs> um, but it's so insulting because it's like, yeah, the, the whole hemisphere, the whole continent is America. Uh, and it's, an, it's, it's another form of appropriation uh, of identity. And so thank you for bringing that up. <laughs> thank you both. You both were political prisoners, as we know. Why don't, you, why don't you share about, like, how did you both deal with fear during your time in jail, Olga? And, and, yeah. I think the actual time in the prison, I don't think that I remember as feeling fear per se. Um, yes, so, sometimes yes, because, but mostly came because of the uncertainty, because it was always very unclear whether, whether we could be released or whether we're going to be transferred to another uh, prison or whether we're going to go back to the torture chamber. Uh, the time that I was probably the most afraid was during the first days where there was the, the torture. And, and maybe in some ways after that, it was almost like, well, this is just prison, you know. So, mm -hmm. you know, there was fear. No, I'm not going to deny that there, there was fear. But I think it was brought about mostly by what was happening on, in the, out, on the outside. And so mm -hmm. because whatever was happening in Argentina at that time, Repression was growing, absolutely, uh, every day. And so as things would get more repressive in the outside, they became more repressive in prison as well. I would say the, the way that, that we would overcome fear, we would be afraid, wondering what is going to happen, and then many things could happen. You could be taken out, supposedly, to go to court and not come back, and that, that started to happen. I think at the time when I was actually the most afraid was when I was released because I was put on a small airplane, and they had started already throwing people from airplanes. And so, uh, in Argentina, they did this. And so, just a small plane, just my, I was the only prisoner, and there were uh, soldiers, and so on. And so, I would say that's the one time that I thought, I wonder if this is it. I wonder if they're going to do this. Unfortunately, of course, they didn't. But I think a lot of it was the uncertainty. It's just not knowing what was going to happen, what to prepare yourself for. A lot of times, when, when, when I think when we have fear, but we know what may happen. You prepare yourself for it. 
And I think that the biggest fear is when you don't know what's going to happen. I don't know what your experience was. Well, you know, I, now, many years later, I realize that it was a, a gift to have been able to experience that imprisonment since I was charged with three capital crimes. And so looming over was always the, the possibility of going to California's um, gas chamber, which is how people were killed in, in those days by the state. But I say that it was a gift because I really learned that one can be afraid and not allow fear to immobilize you. I learned that it's possible to be afraid and to continue and to... This is something that Audre Lorde writes about, that fear does not have to immobilize us. We do not have to be afraid of fear. And there were many, many moments when I did not know whether uh, I would be alive the next day. And as Olga pointed out, there is, I think, this cultivation of uncertainty uh, because they... They never tell you what is happening. They never tell you where they're taking you. And I had an experience with a plane as well when I was extradited from New York to, to Marin County. And I wasn't even told that I was getting ready to be taken to a naval base and put on a, a National Guard plane. I was simply told that I had to go with the cops who came to get me. And I, I said, no, I refuse. I I remember that evening I said, I know that my attorney has been in Washington before the Supreme Court contesting the, the ruling that I was to be extradited. And I said, I refuse to leave until I see my attorney. And they had actually told me to get me to leave my cell at 1 o'clock in the morning. They told me that my attorney was there to visit me. Hmm. But as it turned out, hmm. he wasn't. Uh, there were a whole bunch of of armed men, and I refused to go. And I also, I had learned some karate. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you were right. You were right. <laughs> I used the opportunity <laughs> to employ. And what was, what was really interesting was that there were two black women officers who were actually very supportive of me, and so they jumped into the fight, and they started to fight the men. All right. <laughs> um, but, but the fear came after they had taken me in a long caravan to this uh, base, a military base, and I realized that they had National Guardsmen standing in two uh, lines, and I had to walk uh, through this uh, kind of gauntlet uh, in order to make it to the plane. And, and I was handcuffed behind my back, and I had been handcuffed behind my back throughout the whole trip from the jail there. And I kept thinking, well, suppose I trip. You know, suppose I take a false step. And I was certain that, that, that the guns would come out, and for something as, as minor as that. So I, I really felt that I might not even make it to the, the plane. I mean, it's interesting you say that people were thrown out of the airplanes in Argentina. I was on this, this uh, propeller plane, mm. and 
there was a woman they had sent from the jail, from the Wren County Jail, to accompany me. And when I had to go to the, the toilet, and the toilet was even smaller than the ones you have on commercial aircraft, this woman insisted on coming in with you. With me. <laughs> I remember I said, well, what do you think I'm going to do? Do you think I'm going to flush myself down the toilet or something? <laughs> it's interesting that you mentioned that you learned uh, karate because, um, no, it was interesting. When, we were, when I was in prison, one of the things that we did is we actually exercised a lot. As, as much as we could, sometimes we had to do it uh, where the guards could not see us. And part of the mentality was that um, we had to be ready to escape. Hmm. So, uh, and that was the re- revolutionary duty, was to, to be physically you know, ready. But um, I'm not sure I could have done anything with karate against some guards, as she as, as did. <laughs> well, I wasn't the aggressor. Okay. You were defending yourself. I was no, defending myself. <laughs> In yeah. those difficult times, you both had the support of your family, your community, and actually international support. How was it achieved? Angela was part of my campaign to get me out, so that's, that's, why, that's why it worked. <laughs> no. Well, you know, during, during that period, there, was a, there were vibrant movements to free political prisoners. Uh, political prisoners not only in the U.S., but in other parts of the world as well. And I actually ended up uh, going to jail as a result of being involved in, in various campaigns to free uh, members of the Black Panther Party. And then I was involved in Los Siete de la Raza. And then, of course... Uh, uh, there was the Soledad Brothers case, which was the immediate catalyst for my going to jail. And I can remember I was teaching at UCLA and defending my right to teach there because I had been fired by Ronald Reagan and the regents, my first job. Um, and I remember speaking to people in, in various parts of the state uh, about the case of George Jackson, uh, Fleeta Drumgo, uh, John Clochette, and about the importance of creating a movement because I remember saying we never know who will be the next person targeted. Uh, mm-hmm. And I didn't realize when I was saying that that I was also talking about myself. And I think one of the reasons why so many people became involved in the campaign for my freedom had to do with the fact that I had been involved in the campaign, you know, to free uh, Lolita Lebron, to free the Soledad brothers, to free uh, the Chicago Seven. And so it was, uh, it was an amazing time. In my case, not only were all the members of my family, my father spoke, my mother especially, my sister who was pregnant, traveled all over the world, my Two brothers. I had one brother who was, well, I still have this brother. Uh, he was a football player for the Cleveland Browns. Oh. And uh, uh, Nixon had written him a letter uh, sympathizing with him for having uh, someone like me as a sister. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
And, and because uh, my brother refused to take the bait, he sat on the bench for an entire season. So it was, it was, it was an amazing time. But people all over the world, all over this country, and I was uh, talking to uh, Olga about the fact that it was uh, the Chicano community in San Jose that was the basis of uh, support there. My trial took place in San Jose. And in those days, there were maybe about 10 black people in San Jose. I mean, you know, a few more. But, yeah, yeah. Uh, there was one in your there was not me. <laughs> uh, And so the primary organizing happened in the Chicano community. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. And the jury was all white with the exception of one person, and it was a Chicano man who played a major role in the deliberations. I mean, it was a time, it didn't have to do with me, I don't think. I, I just happened to be the person targeted at a moment when people were really prepared to move, when they were fed up with the repression and, and the racism. I don't think it was because of anything I did as an individual. I tried to do what I felt all of us should have been doing at, at the time, but there were many other people who ended up going to prison for many, many years who did not have that kind of support. So I was always aware of that. You know, when I would get a photograph in jail of uh, women in uh, Somalia demonstrating for my freedom, I still encounter people today who tell me what they did. You know, in 1970 and 1971 when I was in jail, and I feel so humbled by it. And I realized that that, that was a moment when we... We were able to palpably experience the promise of global solidarity. You know, and I, and I often say this, uh, that some of the most powerful men in the world wanted to see me walk into the death chamber. Mm -hmm. Richard Nixon was president. I already mentioned that. Mm -hmm. Who do you think was governor? Reagan. Ronald Reagan was governor. Who was the head of the FBI? And, and so that movement demonstrated that the, even though these were three of the most powerful men in the world, that they were nothing compared to the might of organized masses of people all over the world. And so... And so I don't think that the importance of that movement resided in the fact that it freed one individual, namely me. The importance resided precisely in the fact that it demonstrated what is possible if we, if we come together. Yeah. Now, freed on June 4, 1972. And it was an amazing moment. But we celebrated that night and some of the jurors came to the celebration. <laughs> because they had gotten a political education during the course yeah, of the yeah, trial, yeah. you know? <laughs> um, uh, but the next day, we sat down immediately to talk about how to harness the energy that was created around my case so that we would be able to use that momentum, that impulse to free many other people. And so when Olga's case happened in Argentina, 
you can say we were ready to build the kind of uh, uh, movement, not only in the Bay Area, not only in California, but all over the country and in other parts of the world demanding her freedom. And there were so many other cases. As a matter of fact, the mural, uh, we haven't even talked about the fact that this is a, a benefit for both the uh, sure. Chicana Latina Foundation and the Maestra Peace uh, mural. So th I feel so honored to be here. Thank you know, both organizations. Uh, but you may have seen on the Pidge Street facade an image of Lolita Lebron and Dilcia Pagan and many other political prisoners. So, yeah. Well, I, I, I certainly benefited from exactly what you're talking about, Angela. Absolutely. It, it was the power of people coming together that began with good friends and uh, in my family. When I was being interrogated, this is so we understand also the power of the global and international connection among the repressive forces. They would say, oh, so you're one of those Chavez agitators, huh? Mm -hmm. So they knew, mm -hmm. they had gotten that information. They had gotten it from somewhere. And so I think that the reason why I was actually tortured was because they felt that no one would care. This is this young Chicana from Gilroy, farm worker parents. I cannot prove it, but there's no way that a U.S. citizen would be in that situation without the embassy knowing. Who cares? Way down there in Argentina, who's going to know? And it was the absolute individual, collective, and ongoing work just against all odds of my family. My mom, with her fifth grade education, became the spokesperson. She went to Washington a couple of times. So there's all the letters and all the petitions and all the marches. And some of you here participated. I know, I know some of you. And so it is absolutely what you're saying. I, I, there's no, no other way to explain it, but it is the power of mobilization and each individual putting you know, their uh, effort forward. Every once in a while, people say, oh, Catalamante, and they go, are you the one that <laughs> I wrote a letter for? And so it happens, sometimes it happens. And, but one of the things, just who wants to keep us in prison, right? They really did not want me to get out of there. But because of the power of the mobilization, and it was a timing kind of thing, that because the coup happened when the military actually took over in 1976, it's ironic that that's when I was released. And I was released because there had been so much pressure by Congress, because we had some good Congress people. The, uh, the Black Congressional Caucus was the most active and supportive. Ron Dellums, Barbara Lee, Chili uh, Chisholm, Barbara Dorton. I, all the, they were absolutely at the forefront. They got it. The people would say, like, well, why are we worried about this person over there? She's a troublemaker. They totally got it. They knew exactly what was happening, and they stepped forward. So when the coup happened in March, March 24th, 1976, they started to take everything away from the prisons and stuff. We said, okay, the military's coming in, for sure. And that was a, that was a little bit of a fearful day. Mm -hmm. The military came in, 
they replaced all the guards and so on. They came in, put us all into a hall, all the women, and said, who's the Talamante woman? I consider not stepping forward, but <laughs> I said, <coughs> and he's the, the military guy said, so you're the one that Kissinger wants out. Because he's the uh, Secretary of State. So, so much pressure had been applied. And really, the reason why he said, get her out of there, is because my case was calling so much attention to what was going on in Argentina. And so, they, they, they were pissed off because Kissinger was saying, get her out of there. That's how it happened. So, yes, we can bring those men to their knees. Well, you know... We have to constantly renew those struggles. We can't assume that, that what existed in the 1970s, same you know, sense of solidarity, will automatically emerge in the 21st century. I'm really excited about the, the movements that have developed uh, over the last period. I'm excited about the fact that there is a very vibrant Black Lives Matter uh, movement that has spawned many organizations, uh, not only throughout the country, but in other parts of the world. I've met with Black Lives Matter people in Belfast, Ireland. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> And that's kind of reminiscent of the fact that when uh, the Black Panther Party was founded in, in 1966, uh, Black Panther parties were created in Brazil, in New Zealand, in Israel, as a matter of fact. You know, each generation has to rework its commitment, reconfigure its way of imagining the future. And I'm very excited about what's happening now. I do, however, wish that there were a greater sense of internationalism. It's very exciting that uh, Justice for Palestine movement is so much more powerful than we ever could have imagined yeah. 20 years ago. Yeah. Uh, you know, but I think about the fact that in Brazil, well, before Bolsonaro was elected, Marielle Franco was assassinated, and there should have been an uprising here in this country in response to her assassination. And I keep thinking about, you know, why it is that, that we don't often relate our uh, struggles against the repression of, of immigrants to, you know, what is happening with respect to Syria and Libya. In a sense, it's so ironic that we have now the tools to communicate with people instantaneously all over the planet. In those days, when we were fighting for Olga's freedom, when she was in a jail in Argentina, almost all communication was snail mail. Seriously. Oh, yeah. It took a long time to get my letters. Yes. 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 But now that we have the technology to enact that kind of global communication, we need to use it. Yes. I'm actually dreaming of, of a far more vibrant global revolutionary movement. Hopefully, this younger generation is moving in that direction. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I would just add that, uh, you know, having been the 
executive director of Chicana Latina Foundation for 15 years, uh, and before that I worked with Inroads, which is students of color. Also, that's where I put my faith in, and I'm inspired and, and so privileged to be with the uh, the young people and and the young gifted and black. I mean, they're like <laughs> they got it going on, and so. Um, I think that, that I just hope that we can continue to share some lessons. Both of us have been in, in organizations that have tried models of organizing. There are the new, sort of like almost non-models <laughs> of organizing that I look at and trying to understand also what are the structures and what are the systems and what are the ways that people will organize I think I can get to- totally out of my head that kind of organized structure to mobilize people and certainly do not want to go back to the dogmas of the past. My old lefty friends here and uh, <laughs> party builders. It's sort of also trying to understand the new world and, and so on. And, and we did so much without the technology. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think it was because of that, the organized nature that we could mobilize ourselves. And I'm not talking about the purely rigid structures. Okay. I, I have a lot of faith in, in what the young people are doing and proposing and, and trying. I just hope I can keep up with that, with, with some of it. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I keep the faith. I'm and I hopeful. think that, that what's good is that young people have feminist strategies. Mm-hmm. Yes. yes. Which yes. we did not have no, we didn't. at that no, we time. Didn't. No, uh, we didn't. Uh, yeah. And yeah. that they understand the importance of making connection and not focusing on a single issues, but rather understanding the interrelationality, that there's no way that we will ever in gender oppression without also ending racism. And I think that this is something that took a long time to arrive at that, you know, that understanding. But this is why I, I really have so much faith in young people who take for granted what we struggle so hard to try to figure out. And now, I, you know, I see these young people who, are, who, who take it and they run and they go to places we never could have imagined. So that's very exciting. Yeah. You mentioned uh, Black Lives Matter, and I, I have to say that I think, again, the, the feminist component of the uh, organizers also, I think, is part of why I do believe that the message, the importance of the centrality of black people's struggle has permeated and has gotten across, not as much as I even would like it to. The fact that many of us do understand and totally support and are there for the fact that Black Lives Matter unapologetically and on its own without caveats about all the other lives that matter and so on, and to understand politically the importance of the black struggle to all of our struggles. I think it's because of that leadership that is that. And I'm not sure we could have done it. Um, Yeah, and and, and the, the, the meaning of Black Lives Matter, it's not simply about black people. Exactly. It's if ever black lives can be made to matter, then all lives would matter. Exactly. 
Thank you. But I do think, I do think that there is some very specific challenge to that movement. For example, understanding the connection between racist police violence and the repressive racist violence of ICE. Because oftentimes we talk about police as if they were only the cops on the street. And we forget that uh, law enforcement is enormous. And we have to talk about state violence, racist state violence. And that means that we understand we challenge the police in the community. We also have to be willing to stand up. If we say abolish, the structures of policing, we, we mean first and foremost abolish ICE and, and, recognize, and recognize that this, this emphasis on borders is an attack on the humanity of all people. And that's a feminist analysis, that the intersectionality of struggle. And I, I'm excited that younger organizers understand that leadership is not simply about some men, and they're great men. There are some here. The assumption has been in the past that leadership is inherently masculine, that you don't have leaders if you don't have men. And this is why some of the old civil rights organizers who went to Ferguson to talk about what the organizers there in 2014 had done wrong and what they, you know, what they should be doing. And they asked, well, where are the leaders? And, and of course, the, the response was that, that our leadership is collective. Right. As Ella Baker said, we don't need strong leaders if we, we are a leaderful, we're not a leaderless movement, we are a leader, leaderful mm-hmm. movement. And so this notion of collective leadership that has come out of this feminist approach is something very new and very promising because I think we all know that women have always done the work. Yes. <laughs> yes. Every single movement. Every movement. Every. And I think the men should applaud that too because if you were involved, you know, you know who really did the work. Now that you're talking about feminists, about women, I want to ask both of you, who are the most important women in your life? Well, certainly my mother comes to mind. She, and I I didn't know this all the time because of mother-daughter relations and so on. I think in retrospect, I mean, I always felt her, she had a very working class consciousness. And that was one of the things that just permeated how she looked at the world and how she did things and her solidarity with other people, that people call compassion and helping others, which she always did. But in thinking about it and and giving her her due as the political person that she was, it came out of that working-class consciousness, out of the understanding of the relation that one has to the world. Who are you and what power do you have? And so I would say that she just uh, has left me with a lot of richness that I continue to learn from, that I continue to, to uh, reflect on. And I'll share just one small anecdote. Growing up in Mexicali, we lived in this little barrio, and across the street lived um, a woman who was what people would call a kept woman, and most of the, other, the people in the street would not talk with her, would not talk to her. 
would not relate to her. And I remember my mom just so like, who do they think they are? They don't know her. And she deserves to be respected and always instilled in us as kids to definitely not be part of the taunting or the, the, the laughing at and so on. And I have never forgotten that, just that, that ability to see the human being, to be in solidarity, and to say she's doing what she needs to do to uh, put food on the table. So I, I could name others uh, along the way. No, <laughs> And, you know, we, we both named Betita. Betita yes. has been just a, a dear friend and such an amazing leader and, and such a strong voice in wanting to bring black-brown unity. And I know the two of you actually did presentations on that. And so that's another voice that I, that I carry with me as I do the work that I do and honor her for everything that, that she did for the movement. So I'll, I'll stop there. Well, maybe I should say a few words about my mother as well. Uh, I, uh, it took me a long time to realize that I was following in my mother's footsteps in so many ways. My mother, my mother was a foster child who grew up in the backwoods of Alabama. She told us a story when we were growing up, and we'd say, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, <laughs> When she was 13 and graduated from elementary school, her foster parents felt that she needed to get a job because that's what people did in those days. But she was one of the, if not the smartest uh, child in her class, and we talked to some of her classmates who said that she was always the one the teacher left in charge. And so she must have gotten this uh, inspiration to continue her education uh, from the educators who shaped her. So she literally ran away from home. You know, there weren't a lot of black high schools in, in those days. And the closest high school was maybe 100 miles away in Birmingham, Alabama. So she basically <coughs> ran away to Birmingham, got a job as a domestic that allowed her to pay for a room at the YWCA, uh, in order to go to high school. And in high school, the, the principal noticed her and eventually supported her. Eventually, she went to live with the principal and his, and his wife, and they supported her um, higher education, so she ended up going to an HBCU in Birmingham, Miles College. And then later, she got her master's at NYU during the summer, when she had three children and then four children, and she would take all of us to New York. And we lived with uh, close friends who were uh, black members of the Communist Party, whom they had met when the Burnhams had come to Alabama to organize during the late 1930s and early 40s, but they were run out of town by Bull Connor. And so we spent, like, summers with them while my mother was getting her master's at NYU. And can you imagine? Uh, this, is, this was a house with first six children and then eight children. But she also was an activist. And I kind of knew this, but I didn't know this. She became involved in the Scottsboro case when she was in college. And she got involved with the Southern Negro Youth Congress, which was an organization that black 
members of the Communist Party had, had created. You see, that's my connection with, with communism. <laughs> <laughs> and when, when I was young, you know, I knew all these communists, but I thought I was much more radical than they. So I never, <laughs> it never occurred to me to join the Communist Party <laughs> because these were my parents' <laughs> friends. <laughs> you were like beyond communism. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> uh, and, and, you know, she had the opportunity to hear Du Bois speak. And, uh, but growing up, I always, you know, I fought with my mother. But I ended up leaving to go to high school in New York. And I realize now why she was so willing to let us go, uh, all of the children, uh, at, at such a young age, because she had, she had already had that experience. Uh, and during, during, my, during the, my case, she traveled all over the country. My sister was in Europe and in, in, in Latin America and in other places organizing. And my mother had my sister's nine-month-old baby traveling around the country. So there's, there's a wonderful picture of her holding Issa as an infant in one hand and her fist. <laughs> <laughs> so you know, I realize uh, the older I get, the more I realize that uh, my mother was the one who paved this path for mm -hmm. me. And when I was growing up in Birmingham, she always told us, this is an answer to the racism question earlier on, when we wanted an explanation for why things were the way they were, always said, you may not be able to go into the library now, but this is not the way things are supposed to be. Mm -hmm. You may not be admitted to the amusement park, but this is wrong. This is not the way things are supposed to be, and they will be different. So she taught us how to imagine a different future. Mm -hmm. I always say that's why I, I began to study uh, philosophy and critical theory, because from the time I was very young, I was able to exercise my imagination in inhabiting this, this space of intense racism, but at the same time inhabiting an imaginary space mm -hmm. in which racism uh, would have been conquered. So, yeah, I guess... I guess my mother is my major influence. Uh, <laughs> good for our moms. Phenomenal women, right? Well, why don't we take a look to America, the continent? There's so much going on on the international level. In a few hours, Mexico, my country, will have a new president and will have the highest concentration of female lawmakers in Mexican history. In Argentina, it seems like a football game gets more attention, media, media attention, than the feminist sites. In Brazil, as you already mentioned, Angela, it, they have a president, homophobic, misogynist, racist. And in Chile, the, Ma the Mapuches, the originally people, the indigenous, are battling for their land. Can you comment about it? <laughs> well, you know, actually, I'm going to... I'm going to Brazil on Tuesday to participate in the 30th anniversary conference of the first gathering of Afro-Brazilian women. You know, Brazil was such a hope for the future. And in many ways, for those of us who follow what was going on in Brazil, it was, it was similar to South Africa in the sense that we imagined South Africa as being the hope of the planet. And, you know, things never turn out the way we assume they will. But uh, I mentioned Marielle Franco, who was assassinated last March. 
And I think it's important to realize that she wasn't targeted as an individual. She was targeted because of the, the feminist movement, the LGBTQ movement in Brazil. And I guess what I would say is that I hope we're able all over the world to harness the, the promises that we don't forget, that we don't forget here in this country that just because we have someone at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue who is not fit for anything, really. <laughs> not for anything. <laughs> I mean, that, that does not mean that we let go of our dreams. And that that does not mean that we forget what it is we have achieved over the years. And the promises, the dashed promises, have to constitute an agenda for revolutionary change in the present and in the future. We cannot allow the people like Trump and Duterte and, and Bolsonaro to make us forget, you know, what it is we need to continue fighting for in the world. And where was it? I'm reading a New York Times article, something like 80% of the people in this country believe that climate change is responsible for, you know, all of the disasters that we've been experiencing, even though we have a president who is a denier. I think that, it, that it's not the majority of the people. I still have faith mm -hmm. in people. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, there are demagogues like Trump and Duterte and Bolsonaro who are able to, unfortunately, seduce people by making promises that will never be kept anyway. But I think our job is to do the organizing and to make that organizing global and to recognize that we, we need to join hands with people in, in, in Brazil and we need to know what is going on in Colombia. We need to know about the land struggles, uh, the deterritorialization of indigenous people and African descended people in Colombia. And we need to celebrate because in Costa Rica, they did have promising election last spring and they elected the very first black woman in all of Latin America to the vice presidency, mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. Etsy Campbell. Uh, so there are things to celebrate. Yes. <laughs> All I would add is I, I hope that we continue to keep in mind the lessons from the Vietnamese people from many decades ago as we were in solidarity with those struggles who always made a distinction between the people and the governments. And that's part of what formed the solidarity movements then extended to Latin America. And you're right, Angela, that in reflecting from what you were saying, it's like we had, especially here in the Bay Area, such a vibrant solidarity movement, certainly to Latin America, but for the rest of the world. And we have to, we have to make sure that we keep that alive, and especially because of things like what's happening with the caravan, where they're able to change the narrative to demonize and make it totally okay to tear gas families and children. It's just like, why aren't we like just in a total uproar over that? And to look at the conditions that have been caused largely by these governments of this country, of this U.S., not America, uh, towards the peoples and the countries of Central America, 
that are driving them in desperation here. And so if this is part of the conversation to make sure that, that our movements here are imbued with that kind of consciousness, an international consciousness, an international solidarity. So I appreciate you very much, Angela, for always having that very clear perspective. And it's happening all over the world, too. I was just remembered I was in Madrid a, a couple of weeks ago. I was invited by the Association of Guatemalan Women, hmm. uh, who are leading the struggle mm-hmm in Madrid for the rights of migrants. Yeah, so I had the opportunity when I was there to visit a, a migrant detention center and to talk to people who were being, mm. being held there. And this is a struggle in Spain being led by women from Guatemala. And one of the points that is being made all over Europe is that Europe is no longer white. You know, Europe was never really white. It was really white. It was never really white, but we always imagined Europe as white. But it's very clear now that Europe has to let go of its whiteness. Mm -hmm. And some of the most important leadership to a whole range of movements comes from what we call women of color, because that's not a term that is used all over the world. Women of the global south, you know, women from the Middle East. And that's actually exciting. That's pretty exciting that, that we happened to be alive at a moment when there is an uprising of women all over the world. You know, when sexual violence, sexual violence and sexual harassment will no longer be taken for granted. And so it also means that there are no models of masculinity that are emerging. It also means that we're challenging the gender binary with which we have lived for so many centuries mm-hmm. and movements of people who identify as trans or gender nonconforming are leading us in directions that we could have never imagined. And that's really exciting. Yeah. I guess we're going to close the conversation and I will ask you my last one. We just one. started. <laughs> okay. We want to know, or I want to know, what gives you hope every single day to continue resisting, Olga and Angela? And with that, we close the conversation. I, I anguish almost every day. I do anguish and I worry. And, and then I get onto that, that other side by thinking of how important it is that we do keep fighting, that we do keep resisting, that we do keep organizing, that we do keep uniting, that we do keep collaborating, that we do keep learning. And pretty much by midday, I'm kind of ready to uh, <laughs> hit the road. <laughs> But, uh, you know, it's like there's no alternative. There's no alternative. And other people have not had the luxury of an alternative. And I take that with a lot of humility with, in terms of my own privilege of, of where I am and where I live, uh, what I'm able to live. And so I take that as part of, of, of our responsibility. And, and I do find joy in what we do, in how we do organize and how we work with each other. I find joy in that, and I find joy in being here with you, Angela, and yours. 
such an inspiration. And so, if you stay with it, I'll stay with it. <laughs> <laughs> Well, let me say that it's such an honor to be here with you, uh, Olga. You know, who would have known when we met each other in 1976 that we would both still be in, mm -hmm. in the struggle? How many mm -hmm. years later is that? Yeah, I know. I stopped <laughs> counting the years. Yeah, yeah. 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 42 years later. But, you know, I, I am inspired by young people, and I, I said a few words about that before, but I'm also inspired by the ways in which uh, we are encouraged to, to use our imaginations by artists and musicians. We're here to celebrate the Maestro Peace uh, mural. And that mural, how many of you have seen the mural? Well, you should go back again. <laughs> because that mural was so prescient. When it was painted in 1993-1994, we had not arrived at this moment where we could actually witness a women's uprising mm. all over the world. But the mural tells us, the mural mm. tells us that there will be change and women will be the participants and indeed also the leaders of that change. We couldn't have, I don't know whether we could have said it in this kind of language at that time, mm -hmm. but the artist invited us to imagine uh, what we are now experiencing. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a way in which art has a vision of the future before we're able to actually articulate it with discursive language that we use. I'm very moved by artists, by visual artists, by uh, musicians. The young women uh, from Young, Gifted, and Black, of course, always makes me think about Nina Simone, mm -hmm. uh, who, who also... Uh, presaged and prefigured so much of what we are experiencing now. And so art allows us to inhabit the future uh, before we really know how to describe you know, what it is uh, uh, we're looking for. It helps us to sense ourselves as connected. We get a sense of what community means when we experience together a work of art, whether it's a film, whether it's a, a mural, you know, whether it's music. That is what convinces me that there is a better future ahead. Yeah. And, right. that, and that probably, you know, 25 years from now, uh, people will be saying, well, what was that name of that crazy man who was elected, uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, and, and tried to reverse the direction of history but did not succeed? Yay! <laughs> <laughs> and it's an to hear you. Thank you, Jellies. Applause for Jellies.
culpa se quedan mudos Otros tienen memoria para olvidar Si la violencia es un espejo que se rompe Y nuestras lágrimas caídas gritarán Solo recuerda que mi cara tiene un nombre Y nunca más se callará Y nunca más se callará Te pido me des la mano Y en el camino me sigas Pa' mostrarle a los de arriba La ira de los de abajo Con el miedo sepultado Es hora de ser valiente En honor a los ausentes Ya no me cruzo de brazos Unos de tanta culpa se quedan mudos Otros tienen memoria para listening to La Raza Chronicles, Crónicas de la Raza. If you'd like to stay up on our news, like us on Facebook at La Raza Chronicles on Facebook. If you want to hear this program or share it with a friend, you can go to soundcloud.com slash La Raza Chronicles and share it. If you have any ideas for interviews we should be doing or would like to get involved with our collective, you can email us at La Raza Chronicles at kpfa.org. Muchísimas gracias y buenas noches. <laughs> <laughs>